We are reading from uh, Revelations chapter 7, 1 through 8, 5. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, worshiping God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Joseph. Good morning. Um, I'm Andrew Sharp. I'm an elder here. 
I'll be preaching from the book of Revelation. That's a sentence I never thought I'd ever utter, <laughs> but here it is. So, Christians have an interesting relationship with the book of Revelation. I think we, we have a tendency to look at it as a code to decipher. We, we want to apply it to our present circumstances. And why not? You know, the world's a messed up place in so many ways. We see war and oppression and poverty and injustice and natural disasters. We see a culture that glorifies the self rather than God. We yearn for Jesus to come and make things right. So it's probably natural for every generation to look at Revelation and try to see it as a cryptic description of what is happening at that point in time. And in some ways, it's because the problems of the world that Revelation describes are unfortunately timeless. Power corrupts, money so often corrupts. John in his Revelation saw that in his time we see it in our time. And we want to know not only how it's going to turn out in the end, but when that's going to happen. We, we're dying to know. And we look to Revelation to give us clues to that. So often we, we long to be the few who are able to crack the code so that we are theologically in the know but Revelation is, is not a Da Vinci Code with hidden meanings that lie waiting for the smart people to find, find them out. Yes, there is really, really vivid imagery throughout Revelation, and it's often confounding to us, but it would not have been that confounding to the churches that John was writing to. So we're gonna look at chapter seven and the first five verses of chapter eight. And as we enter chapter seven, we have seen the opening of the first, first six of the seven seals of the scroll. But instead of going right into the opening of the seventh seal, John takes a time out of sorts. All of creation has been shaken by the opening of the six seals and as listeners, we're bracing ourselves for the opening of the seventh seal. But John pauses and tell us, tells us that he sees four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds that would be destructive if unleashed. Another angel bearing God's seal tells them to restrain the winds until the servants of God are sealed. John hears that the number of the sealed is 144,000, and that it's comprised of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. This numbering suggests the counting of an army. And the beginning of this part of the vision suggests a military conflict. The Messiah had been viewed by the Jews as a military leader. That's what they were waiting for. 
and they expected a physical battle would ensue once the Messiah appeared. Jews who encountered Jesus and understood his representation to be the Messiah really struggled to reconcile the idea of a sacrificial Messiah with the expected military Messiah. So tellingly, John hears of this military force, but then he looks and he sees something very different. What John sees is a multi-ethnic multitude of people. This is not gonna be a worldly military battle. The vision is of Christ's army being comprised of those prepared to be martyred as Christ was. Remember back in chapter five, if you've been following along, John was told, behold, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He turned instead and saw a sacrificed lamb. There again, we see the expectation of military deliverance replaced by Christ's sacrificial victory. And that's what's happening in chapter seven. There are so many details um, and it's in, in the description of the multitude that you know, you almost have to stop and sort of process each of the images. We hear that the multitude is wearing white robes. This represents God's restoration of his people, and the color white represents purity. They're washed clean in the blood of the lamb. If you remember in the parable of the prodigal son, the first thing the father does when he receives the prodigal son back home is he gives him a robe to wear. He is restored to his place in the family. In Revelation, we see God restoring humankind to their place in his family. And this is for every nation. And the angels and living creatures bowed down before the throne saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. If you count all those elements to that praise, there are seven, which is a number we see throughout Revelation. Seven, it, it's significant. It rep represents completeness. And not surprisingly, there are seven elements of that praise and placed in the center of it all is thanksgiving. Now, curiously, one of the elders asks John if he knows who the white-robed multitudes are. Typically, in apocalyptic literature, the writer would be the one asking the questions, but John doesn't ask any questions in Revelation he has asked a few questions. John politely deflects the question. I, I love the formality, but it, it makes sense. He says, sir, you know. So the elder answers his own question, saying that they've come out of the tribulation and they've washed themselves clean in the blood of the lamb. The gospel 
is so radical in so many ways. We expect to be saved by military might, by power, maybe by our own efforts. The gospel says something very different. There's nothing you need to do. It's all been done by Jesus, who conquered by offering himself as a sacrifice. We're merely invited to accept and enter into that what has already been accomplished for us. And it's through that acceptance, that decision to follow Jesus, that we ourselves are made clean. What does it mean that those clothed in white came out of a great tribulation? Tribulation is one of those words that we see, like, usually in a religious context. I mean, I've never heard anybody say, wow, I just came through a tremendous tribulation at work this week. You just don't talk that way. Um, But really, tribulation, it's maybe more helpful to think of it as a great ordeal. The implication of those in white robes is that they've been martyred. And importantly, John is saying, he's not, I'll tell you what he's not saying, he's not saying you need to be martyred. He's not recommending that as a course of action for Christians. You don't get extra credit for being martyred. Believers should not seek out martyrdom. That should be in notes if people are taking notes. He's telling the seven churches, though, that death may well be the price that needs to be paid for being believers. And he says not to worry about it. The end of chapter 7 is a wonderful and reassuring description of what awaits followers of Jesus. Suffering will end. And again, in a radical reversal of roles, the lamb becomes the shepherd. The gospel turns everything on its head. It's amazing. Indeed, Jesus is our shepherd now. Matt noted how many Old Testament references are contained in Revelation. Here, too, we see it. Verses 16 and 17 are straight out of Isaiah 49.10. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. Likewise, God wiping every tear away from their eyes is from Isaiah 25.8. All of this would have been very familiar to John's readers, or I should say listeners. What God promises to his people in the Old Testament comes to fruition in Revelation. The end of chapter 7 ends the pause before the opening of the seventh seal. And when chapter 8 begins, we get right back to business. And again, notice all the sevens. Seven... Censored, well, let's see. We'll go back to the text. Seven angels, seven trumpets. One golden censer. What 
one of the things that's most confounding to me about the beginning of chapter eight is John tells us that there's a 30 minute silence in heaven. I always think of heaven being sort of beyond the concept of time. And yet John gives us a half hour, (laughs) which doesn't even seem like a very long time in sort of the eternal sense of things. Um, But I I think we probably shouldn't get hung up on the 30 minute thing um, because in Jewish literature, silence, a pause was associated with coming, the coming of divine activity or judgment. We see it in Exodus and First Samuel and the Psalms and Isaiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel, Amos, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Zephaniah, and Ezra. It's, it's all through the Old Testament. Before there's divine judgment, there's a break. You almost have to take a breath. Therefore, the silence in 8.1 should be understood as the anticipation of this happening. An angel stands at the altar with a golden censer. I had to look this up. I didn't know what censer referred to. It's, uh, it's an open-topped pan made of bronze. Well, it's bronze if it was in the tabernacle. It, in Solomon's temple, it was made of gold. It's used to carry live coals from the altar of burnt offerings and often incense would be placed on the coals and the censers and offered to the Lord. The presentation of the censer announces the avenging of the blood of the martyrs, that that's begun, and it's described as thunder and lightning and an earthquake. And this is going to be echoed in later chapters in Revelation as the final judgment is described. Here God is directly answering the prayers of the saints for justice. Revelation, I think, is best understood as a caution and a reassurance. John cautions the seven Asian churches about the issues within them, about threats to their core beliefs, and great ordeals that are going to come. The churches were being persecuted, and John is saying, this is going to continue for a while. It's going to intensify. Today in the U.S., we don't live in that kind of peril. We aren't persecuted in the way the Asian churches were. We might complain about the government or that our culture is attacking our Christian values. But we don't live with an expectation that martyrdom is going to be a likely result of our faith. Yet we should be wary of allowing ourselves to settle into a comfortable Christianity. And certainly there are plenty of Christians around the world who are persecuted to varying degrees. John reminds us, and reminds those churches that an ultimate, complete, and eternal victory awaits. And I have to believe that John struggled mightily to put into words the awesome grandeur 
and splendor that he saw in the throne room. And I wonder if when we are ourselves in that throne room, we're going to pause to think, okay, I see what John was getting at there. Or the opposite, it's like, oh, that's not an emerald rainbow, it's maybe a forest green, but, you know, and what, what about the tents? I don't, he, there were tents here, seven tents, he doesn't see anything. I suspect that probably won't be what's going on in our minds at that point in time. I think we'll probably be too awestruck to do anything than throw ourselves down on our faces like the elders do throughout Revelation. If, if you want to entertain yourself, um, go count the number of times the elders throw themselves down on their faces in worship. It sounds like it's nearly constant. The message of Revelation is not come figure out Revelation so we'll know if we're in the end times. That is not the message of Revelation. Every generation sees itself as living in the end times. Why? Because there's never a time when there isn't oppression and injustice and hate. Every generation has its Babylon. Every generation has its Nero or more than one Nero or more than one Babylon. We look through history and we see, wow, a lot, lot hasn't changed. For me though, the message of Revelation is stay strong in the faith. The victory is coming. In fact, it's already achieved. And love wins. That's an amazing message. Love wins. Corruption and injustice and hate and the worship of anything other than God loses. And that God is as good as we always believed him to be. Indeed, he's even way better than that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, even in our mostly comfortable Christianity in this country, we struggle with the world. We're painfully aware it's not what it should be. We want you, Jesus, to come fix it. And we're impatient. And we want to see clues that, that it's about to happen imminently. But bring our thoughts back and our minds back and our hearts back to the fact that the victory is ours. It's yours, but it's also ours. Let that comfort us. In Jesus' name, amen.